Welcome back to the White Coats of the Roundtable podcast. Today is uh, episode three, our roadmap to good CME and CEs. Uh, but before we get started, I just want to just talk about some light stuff. What's been going on with your practice or professional? Anything interesting or fun happening recently? I know we've talked about trying to avoid time stamping these, but just to give you context, so it is March 22nd. So March 22nd, at least on my end, I don't know if you notice it from a pharmacy perspective, but COVID is definitely receding just in terms of behavior and, you know, patient attitudes. So we're busier than ever. I think what's happened is through COVID, a lot of patients, I work in psychiatry, so a lot of patients were struggling, unfortunately, more depression, more anxiety throughout the past two years. But now as COVID is starting to go away, we're still seeing lots of depression, lots of anxiety because of economic disruption, family disruption, whatever it may be. But now we also have patients who are coming out of the woodwork who I haven't even seen in you know eight or nine months because they've been hunkered down and in, in kind of riding out the pandemic. And they're kind of coming out of the woodwork, now coming back into the office and haven't seen their psych provider in eight or nine months. So you can uh, imagine that things are difficult. So yeah, it's been busy, but Beyond that, it's been uh, fun. I actually tomorrow have a, an interview with a, another CME company. So as we're talking about CME, so to talk about maybe a, a faculty position to do some CME work for depression. So that'll be fun. I'm interested though, is, are you seeing more people coming in because they are finally feeling energized enough to come and deal with it? Or is it financially or is it prioritizing differently in life? Like, do you see a trend with folks when you talk about coming out of the woodwork like that? Sure. So in my patient population, obviously it's going to be a little bit skewed because it's psychiatry, but I have a lot of patients that I see that had some level of underlying anxiety and maybe some level of agoraphobia and some difficulty in, you know, big public places before this happened. And when the pandemic hit, they were, they were already kind of primed to, to look for a reason to not interact with society. And they've just, it's, so it's virus fear. Mm -hmm. And I think post Omicron, they're, they're now kind of at a point where they're starting to come out. They're, they're going to the grocery store instead of using the delivery service. So they're, they're mm -hmm. starting to kind of reintegrate into normal life. And when you've gone two years, I mean, there's some people that I see that they really haven't left their house mm -hmm. for two years because they've had yeah. groceries delivered. I mean, everything these days can be delivered. So understandably, two years of isolation, there can be a little bit of a reintegration process. So even for people that maybe pre-COVID did not have severe debilitating anxiety, it's it's been interesting now seeing things kind of move slowly back to normal, mm -hmm. um, not only economically, you know, day-to-day -day life, but even just with mental health. Um, certainly, we're seeing that slow transition, but it's a little bit bumpy along the way. I think that we're going to see some really interesting studies come out in the future, some meta-analysis behind what we've seen, outcomes, um, increase in anxiety and depression, or at least the presentation of such. I've seen a lot of younger folks, I'm talking like 11, 12, starting SSRIs or starting um, some of those fast acting anxiety medications. And you've seen that increase with COVID? It's anecdotal. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I can't, I don't have data behind it, but I've talked to more mothers and fathers about their children that they're nervous about and they're nervous about starting SSRIs. I had to talk to some mother um, off a ledge recently about starting an SSRI because of the issue with Celexa and the suicidality and ideation mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what the FDA did across the board with SSRIs. And it's just, it's hard to talk to parents about their children's mental health. Yeah. I've anecdotally, I've seen a ton more, um, more conversation, which is good. I mean, I promote mental health awareness and I think many people just had never taken care of themselves and this kind of pushed them into the spout where it's like, okay, I, I can't handle this myself, which is good for them and good for us. Yeah, I, I agree. Good for us. Maybe uh, sounds a little dark. I know what you mean, though. It's good when patients are reaching out and getting help. They probably should have been dealing with some of their disease states beforehand, but COVID pushed them into that, which now it's like, okay, I have to take care of this now. Um, I'm not speaking about the people who um, did, had no uh, mm-hmm. familial issues issues in the past, but has come out because only because of um COVID. I mean, that's, that's a complete different situation. Sure. Uh, but for me, uh, there's a ton happening, uh, professionally right now, um, a lot of changes, but mo- most specifically, I mean, we were expanding how many pharmacies will be distributing, uh, those COVID treatments, uh, in, in the, uh, the therapeutics, setting. the therapeutics or the vaccines, mm-hmm. you know, the therapeutics. So, okay. uh, where I'm, where I'm at currently, we will be starting to dispense Molnupiravir. Uh, so we're, you know, educating pharmacists on how to handle it. Um, it, interesting enough, it's, it's going to be an easier medication to deal with because there's not a lot of issues with it, not a lot of side effects. That's actually one of the lowest side effect profiles. Uh, it's only five days of treatment. And, um, but it's, it gives hope to people, um, uh, people who cannot live in the hospital and with how many people are there anyway. So it's interesting to see a new medication now. And I mean, learning, I do love learning. And sometimes we just don't get the opportunity to learn new things with how busy we are in the day to day. Uh, yeah. So today, as we mentioned before, we're going to be talking about CEs and CMEs. I want to hear what you have to say, Mike, because this is some. This is definitely your wheelhouse. Because not only do you participate, but you are somebody who presents and have done CEs and CMEs for multiple organizations. I think you might be the guy to talk to about this. But maybe you can tell me just some backgrounds, a little bit about. Uh, CMEs. And I think anybody in the healthcare system is going to like a little bit of data. What do you got for us? What what can you tell me about CEs and CMEs in the healthcare professional fields? Well, before we get into it, I want to make sure, you know, as we do the podcast, that we're always very open and transparent. So just disclosure wise, um, because this podcast is generally going to be non-clinical stuff, there won't be too much of this. But in this case, there is some overlap with uh, financial interests, at least on my end. So just as we go into this, uh, financial disclosures, I do have financial relationships with some of the CME companies that we'll be talking about. So just right off the bat, and when we talk about it specifically, I'll once again remind everyone that I do have a a disclosure there. So Global Medical Education, Practicing Clinician Exchange, and then Point of Care Network are all medical education CME companies that I've worked with or consulted with in the past two years. So just something to keep in mind as we're talking about this. Yeah, I think, John, it's really interesting. Like you said, it's I think CME can be a love-hate relationship. I, I love it. 
Um, it's something education. I'm really passionate about it, but my goodness, I'm on, you know, a lot of professional groups on Facebook and LinkedIn. Yes. You made fun of me for being on Facebook. I know I haven't forgotten. My mom's there. I'll see what she thinks about CME when I'm on there, but uh, on these groups so often without fail from Christmas to new year's multiple posts of help. I've got, you know, $1,500 of CME that I'm going to lose. What can I do? Or I need 30 hours of CME before the end of the year so that I can maintain licensure. And it's frustrating on my end because I think CME can be so valuable. It's really important in medicine to stay up to date because medicine is a, a constant battle to um, fight off irrelevance. You know, medicine is always evolving. I've been doing this for 10 years and I feel like there's a lot of things in psychiatry that are completely changed from when I entered the field when I graduated. And if we're not keeping up to date on that, we're not doing our best by patients. It may also make our career less fulfilling if, if we're more frustrated, if maybe there's new techniques or new approaches to things that can make life easier. So when people are waiting until, you know, three days before the due date, maybe I'm being too cynical, but the likelihood, in my opinion, is that they're not getting really high quality CME and watching through online yeah. CME to make sure that they're learning and improving their clinical practice. So I, I think it's something that is unfortunately not always appreciated by, by medical professionals for the value that it can bring to their clinical practice, but just overall healthcare career. Let me break in for a second because I fall uh, subject to that sometimes where I'm in the last six months and I have, I still have 15 credits. I have to, mm -hmm. you know, 15, 20 credits. It's not that I don't want to, I've got clinical work I'm already doing. And when I finally sit down and say, okay, I got to do something. The last thing sometimes I want to do is sit there and hear about the seventh presentation out of 14th for heart failure. And you, you should have been going one through 14, but you had to pick that one out and you, you know, and you're just kind of surviving to get through. So I've been subject to it, but on the other hand, my wife was diagnosed with type one diabetes last year as a 32 year old, uh, no family history. We don't think we had COVID. It shocked us. It changed our lives completely. You can bet on it that I was sitting down, joined the ADA right away um, and went to their last year's annual uh, conference and watched all their videos, got a bunch of CEs. Some of them I could get accredited, uh, to my account, but some of them I could not, but I wanted to learn. I wanted to understand more, even though I know a lot about diabetes, there are new treatments, new data coming out all the time. It, you just got to find what you're passionate about. At least that's what I have to do. I'm on the other side of that. Sometimes Mike, I apologize. about. That. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be on a high moral horse. I think we're all guilty at some point in our careers of putting on an online or on-demand CME and then walking away from the computer or putting it on mute while you're watching Netflix, right? And I agree with you. I think the the key with this, I think one of the takeaways for listeners out of this episode is our hope is that this episode can inspire you to be more thoughtful and intentional with your CME because it really can be an immensely beneficial thing, but not if you wait until December 30th to do it. Mm -hmm. So so hopefully this isn't going to necessarily give you some sneaky tricks on how to find good CME and sort through the bad. Although we will give you resources of different places that at least you and I have found to be quite helpful, but more so just think about it, you know, start thinking about this in the first quarter of the year, try and, you know, schedule some time so that you can knock off some every you know month or every week, however you want to do it so that it's not a mad dash at the end where you don't have time to dedicate to it and really learn. 
So from a pharmacist perspective, John, you can educate me because obviously I'm, I'm more familiar with the, the provider side with PAs, NPs, and physicians, but do, do pharmacists have CME requirements and what does that look like? And do employers typically provide you with CME funds? Okay. So that does vary state to state, as we all know. Um, but for at least New York state, I can speak, uh, speak on, we require New York state at 45 hours of CE every three years. And that has to be split up a certain way. Half has to be in person or ha- or live, they call it. Um, and half of it can be work from home or um, offline. But three of those hours have to be medication error reduction in some way or another. And it d- that doesn't have to be live or uh, it doesn't have to be home specifically, but it has to be at least three hours of that uh, in New York state. I, I've looked at other states for pharmacists too. Some are uh, less, some are a little bit more. Um, I, actually, I don't know if anything is more than 45 hours, but there are states that are at least less. I actually, I mean, this wasn't planned, Mike. I, I don't know anything about how many hours you got that you're required to have, or if it's, is, is there specifics in your specialty that you have to have specifically? Yeah, so I'll speak to PA, um, just stick with the area I know. So in New York, um, there's not specific CME requirements for PA, but nationally, PAs are required in order to maintain their certification to do 100 hours every two years. And out of that, similarly, 50 of it has to be a live event, either you know an on-demand or in-person, and 50 can be journal reading or self-study. So similar setup. And I, I think that uh, a lot of professions are, are probably similar that way. I believe nursing does vary state by state. Um, in the show notes, we do have links for overviews of CME requirements for each state. And we're going to include that in the show notes. And we're not going to bore you by going through each state for each profession. But I think it is important to know how to find that, especially now in this post-COVID era where telemedicine is here to stay. Um, if you are you know, potentially going to be licensed in multiple states, if you're going to see, be, be seeing patients in multiple states, you need to know the CME requirements for each state. It can be overwhelming. If you, let's say you have three state licenses and you're seeing patients in all three states, that means you very well may have three different CME requirements, three different places where you need to file and log your CME. So I think it is very helpful as a professional to take ownership for your your career, take ownership for your licensure, and make sure that you're familiar with any state that you practice in. I'm a little bit embarrassed though, though. You let me go first, and I'm telling you, I got 45 hours every three years, and you have 100 every two. I, if you would have went first, I would have lied. Uh-huh. Yes, because now I feel now I feel like it's definitely a contest. Yes, I was a little bit shocked that you needed 45 hours to learn how to count. Well, by fives is one thing, but counting by threes <laughs> is when you've leveled up as a pharmacist, you get a specific pin to put on your coat. The I can count pin. Yes. So funny, funny story about that. I uh, it was maybe last year. It was during COVID, so it's been within the past two years. I was out and about somewhere and talking to a pharmacist. I think I might have been picking up a prescription at my local pharmacy. And somehow we got talking and they asked what I do. And I said, oh, I'm a PA and I work at, uh, you know, where I work. And they said, oh, what's your name? We fill scripts from there all the time. Told them my name. And they made a face. They're like, oh, we know you. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound good. And they go, yeah, you're the one who never gets your dispense numbers right. <laughs> Amazing. He's so like, I, yeah, I can. <laughs> uh, 48 for 15 days. Yep. Yep. This guy's a moron. Yeah. So pharmacists save my bacon. 
probably daily. Apparently enough that I have a reputation at the pharmacy for not knowing how to count. So maybe yeah, I need the pharmacy yeah. CME. If you're a provider and we know your name, it's a good, funny, or bad thing. So I'm hoping it's a funny thing for those guys. Basic math, apparently. Um, but yeah, why don't why don't we uh, get into some of the information behind CMEs and maybe why they exist or how many people are involved in them or what's out there? What's holistically, what are we looking at? Sure. So I pulled some numbers from the ACCME 2020 annual report. Once again, we'll have the link in the show notes for you. So in 2020, there were nearly 172,000 CME activities. And in my opinion, you can look at that number two different ways. 172,000 educational activities is an incredible number. But at the same time, if you count in, let's just count pharmacists, nurse practitioners, physicians, and PAs. Um, And I'm sure there's other health professions that have CME requirements as well. We're talking about, you know, several million healthcare professionals that are all having annual educational requirements. So 172,000 activities within the context of servicing several million providers or clinicians is not really that big. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a little bit disheartening that maybe engagement in CME or engagement in continued education is, is lower than it should be. Maybe not as robust, but I found it interesting. Are those, so those separate 172,000 separate activities. Yes. Okay. So you can, you can get a CE credit from any one of those 172. I mean, granted, some of them are for PAs when some are for only pharmacists, some are only for physicians, but okay. Well, yeah, correct. So, you know, some of those may be conferences that offer 50 mm-hmm. CE credits. Some of them may be online webinars that offer one, but 172,000 unique um, CME offerings in 2020. So another interesting stat, non-physician participants now make up 60% of attendees for CE activities. And this is a trend that's really exploded in the past five years or so. Um, Historically, physicians were always the predominant consumer of CE activities. And just really in the past few years, non-physician participants have surged. Mm. I think there's many different reasons for that. I think it's, uh, you know, probably a reflection of the evolution of healthcare, where healthcare is becoming more um, team-based, and certainly you can have physician-led teams, but we're seeing more and more non-physician clinicians and, and providers involved. And then I think also it's just hopefully, at least in my opinion, and a recognition by employers that education is valuable. Mm-hmm. So having you know promotion of education, making sure that there's you know time off for it, making sure that there's stipends for it. I think, and probably continue to drive rising numbers across the board, but certainly in the fastest growing sector of healthcare, which is PA and NP, um, at least from a provider standpoint. I'm not sure, actually, is pharmacists, what are, are pharmacist numbers stable? Are they growing? What's the profession look like over the next couple of years? We can look at it a few different ways, but when I was going to ask you, when, we, when you went to school, did they talk a lot about trying to get new students into the universities? Did they talk about the increase in baby boomers coming to the ages of 65 and older, uh, becoming geriatric, and the need that is not going to be met? Was that a big uh, selling point? I think so. I think uh, PA, you know, the, the profession was founded on physician shortages in the 1960s. So I think that's always been a big selling point that PAs are, are a solution to healthcare access issues. Same with us. It was, uh, we needed the increase. Uh, there was a shortage and we were going to have a lot of folks over 65. And what that really means uh, for those who aren't aware, 
Um, when you turn 65, you, you get Medicare. Um, and when you get Medicare, uh, just statistically, you those 65 and older carry a higher load of medications. Um, and you can backtrack that and say, okay, that means they have more disease states, or at least they are now being diagnosed as they age. So you're going to have anywhere from 15 to 20 on average medications for, for folks above the age of 65. So there's an increased demand at that point. Now, I can only speak from a pharmacist's uh, point of view. We can look at school enrollment. School enrollment is going down. Online learning is going up. Uh, and the market is becoming saturated. Uh, the market, especially for pharmacists, is being saturated. And there's a lot of uh, organizations that are trying to limit the amount of folks going into pharmacy. There's no limit uh, statewide or federally to say how many how many students can be in a school at a given time. Uh, now, that can be a problem because uh, if you are coming out of school you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, you had a starting base of a certain uh, amount of money, but now because it's so saturated, some of these, I can't, I can't understand, but some of these students who are graduating are coming in, uh, making somewhere between 70 to 80% of our base when we started. So, uh, yeah, they are growing, um, but enrollment is down and they're having a hard time getting folks in, uh, new people into the schools, but that could be, I mean, who, who knows at this point, it could be, could it possibly be that, it's the grade migration out of healthcare. Uh, is it we're looking at finances differently, um, or is it people are finally deciding that they want to do what they love instead of what they think is going to make them a lot of money? Uh, it, there's multi uh, multiple factors uh, looking at that, but I would say uh, your original question is: Are there are we going in? Or are we coming out? I would say right now we're leveled, and we just don't know where it's where it's going to break. It's going to go up or down. We know that, but um, we're just going to wait and see. But what about PAs? Yeah, so PA is uh, both PA and NP are one of the faster growing sectors mm -hmm. of healthcare. For PA, I think over the next decade, we're we're estimated to grow about thirty percent. So there's about a hundred and twenty thousand PAs, and I believe there's two hundred and seventy thousand NPs currently. Mm -hmm. And I think both professions are on track to grow about thirty percent. Um, NPs might be a little bit higher without looking specifically at the data, just because there's there's uh, an explosion of schools and some online only schools that have occurred mm -hmm. as well. Um, so their enrollment numbers may spike a little bit faster than PA. PA has been a little bit slower to accredit it, accredit new universities. Um, yeah, it's interesting though because I pharmacy I, I've heard that from people. We have pharmacy interns that will sometimes go through work, and I've heard the difficulty finding jobs, especially as a new grad, where a lot of times people require experience can be quite difficult. So it's interesting how different sectors are, are responding to different market pressures. Yeah, I, I would say even getting advanced learning too. Uh, enrollments for residencies are, are down astronomical numbers. So it's easier to get a residency at this point, which is great because you can, you have a better chance of getting into a specialty that you want to be in. But what does that say for the need? It's it's hard to think about. Um, you want your profession to survive. And I mean, pharmacists are older than PAs and NPs and nurses. I mean, we were around, you know, in ancient Egypt there, guy. So yeah, I think you outdated us by a little anymore. bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People always need medication. Our our profession is uh just 
gearing up to collect Social Security. We're not even 65, I don't think. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's uh, the participation is, to me, when I saw, saw that number, 172,000, uh, I was on the other side. I said, wow, there's a, there's a lot more out there than, you know, I could tell you some of the C's I, I, I've done. Everybody, you, you'd probably laugh, but I could find some better CEs out there. I'm yeah, guessing. that's a that's a good takeaway. So if there's that many CE offerings and you're not happy with what you're finding, look harder because there mm-hmm. probably is something that will fit um, your needs or what you're looking to do specifically. So good transition. Let's talk a little bit about conferences. I I want to maybe extend our conversation from episode two, where where you passionately describe the benefits of networking. I think CME conferences are an immensely rich opportunity to network. So I, I'd be curious to hear, have you gone to CME conferences and what kind of networking opportunities did you get there? Most of these CME conferences I've been to were organization-based and it usually served another purpose rather than just CEs or CMEs. Um, I think of the ASHP mid-year where most of, if you're a pharmacist, you know, that's where you go to try and get, get a residency. Uh, you grease the wheels a bit, you network. And a lot of that networking, I feel bad for all the residency directors because you get handed, there'd be piles and piles of CVs on their desk, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm really interested in this. And they keep a straight face the whole time. I don't know. I've never been a residency director. <laughs> I think I'd have fun doing it. But I mean, <clears throat> to answer your question, it was usually surrounding another reason to be there. It wasn't specifically for CEs or CMEs at those points though, Mike, it'd be places like Las Vegas or, you know, the fun spots to be. Do you want to be sitting in a CE or do you want to be walking around and people watching? Maybe, maybe you're more professional than me, but the Bellagio fountains are enticing. I I get it. You know, what's interesting. I, uh, at the last live conference that I went to, Mm -hmm. it stuck out to me. I saw a lot of pharmacists there. And that was the first year. Now, granted, I hadn't gone to something live in two years because of COVID, but it was notable. I, I saw at least a dozen pharmacists. There were you know, several hundred people there, but that is mm-hmm. far more than I've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, especially the importance of doing residency and getting specialty and getting certified as well. Uh, BCPS certification in the United States. If you want to get to a certain level in the hospital system, most of the requirements are that you get the, that certification by year one or two. So we're going to see, I think, more and more folks uh, involved in the team. And we, we're going to talk a lot about team mentality in the future as well. But yeah, hopefully we'll see more and more. Uh, but yeah, what, what about you? What type of conferences have you been to? And how did you, I want to know how you found them? Number one, who paid for it? Ah, yes. Specifically, I'll talk about live conferences, but then we'll shift and talk about online because I think with COVID, you're going to see more and more of that. I don't, once again, I don't think um, Mm -hmm. online is going away. It's just too Mm -hmm. flexible. But so live conferences, my job, thankfully, you know, historically has provided a CME stipend. So I usually would get $1,500, but then also a week of paid time off to attend a conference. Mm -hmm. So in most of the years that I've been practicing, we would generally go to a live conference. In psychiatry, there's a couple big conferences. It's actually kind of interesting. The American Psychiatric Association, um, which is obviously, you know, the leading physician group, is not particularly PA or NP or really even psychologist um, friendly. So even though psychiatry or mental health, I should say, is probably a, a field of medicine that maybe has the most representation of 
non-physician providers or, you know, a very collegial team-based model with, you know, social workers, counselors, mental health counselors, all kinds of other professions. Yet the APA is not not that great with non-physician people. Um, So the two leading psychopharmacology conferences, which are really focused on, you know, prescribing psychiatric medications are the Neuroscience Educational Institute and then the Psych Congress. So these are both private entities. They're medical education companies. We'll talk about MEECs later. Um, And they, you know, put on annual conference and then throughout the year, they'll do online webinar content, things like that. So these uh, were just the leading conferences. Most people I know go to at least PAs and NPs in psychiatry go to one of these two. And they, they both fill different roles. One conference is a little bit more, um, you know, holistic mental health. There's a lot of, uh, of discussion of, you know, more of psychotherapy, things like that. And the other one is really more kind of hard and heavy on prescribing and then pharmacology. So they fill different roles. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, obviously, these are often in places that are quite enjoyable to go to. They, they typically don't have these, you know, in Wichita, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Sorry for anyone listening in Kansas. Um, so they're usually in great places. But it also offers an opportunity to see colleagues that you maybe only see once a year. Um, you know, see people that, you know, are, per, are practicing in the same field of medicine, whether that be on LinkedIn or Facebook, and you can, you know, meet them and, you know, kind of network. So that can always be really good. I think one of the other benefits of, of live in-person conferences is the ability to interact with the presenter. So recently I went to a meeting and there was like a dinner reception and I saw at the table, there was three physicians that were just, you know, leaders in the field. I was, you know, getting all fanboy and getting all excited because they were just sitting there hanging out. There was an open seat at the table. So I was, you know, very creepy and just sat down. And my goodness, that conversation, just sitting fly on the wall at this dinner, because, you know, I couldn't contribute anything. They were half the stuff they were saying was so deep and over my head in terms of pharmacology. Eating chicken nuggets shaped like dinosaurs. Yeah, pretty yeah. close to that. But <laughs> the conversation was incredible. So an online CME or an online conference, online meeting, those opportunities wouldn't have been there where I was able mm-hmm. to just, you know, kind of in a creepy way, but sponge off of mm-hmm. um, all of these, these incredible physicians and the knowledge that they offered. So I think the live conferences can be really good for that. Um, it, it allows you to engage. I presented a poster once a couple of years ago, and it was the most awful thing that I've done professionally because I am not an extroverted person like you. <laughs> but we did the poster presentation and I don't know if you've ever been to a conference where they do a poster reception. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you, you stand by your poster awkwardly and then people come in, you know, with their, their glass of cheap wine in their hand and they come and ask you questions or criticize your poster. Mm-hmm. So it's uh it can be, you know, about as fun as a colonoscopy if they're, you know, kind of picking apart your research and telling you what you did wrong or what you missed. But at the same time, it's also a great opportunity to, you know, receive good constructive feedback and criticism on your presentation, but then also network, meet new people, engage with people that you may not previously have interacted with, and, uh, you know, maybe find people with mutual interest with regards to the research or other things like that. Mm-hmm. I also think my, my last plug for live conferences is live events, I think, are good because they can reduce distractions. We, we open talking about how we're, we're all guilty of online CME. You just put it on, and then you walk to the other room to watch the football game. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just doing it to check the box. You're not doing it to actually learn. Well, when you're at a live conference, 
my hope you could still be distracted of course especially these days with phones but um, if you're at a live conference hopefully you're more engaged you're more plugged in you're you're listening to the speaker you're not drifting off you're not jumping off the computer to go do something else in between and i think that can lead to uh you know better education obviously if you're more zoned in mm-hmm. so to finish i think i hit on all of them but childcare i've got an incredible uh brilliant spouse who's also a pa so we we always have to balance our cme schedules because weirdly enough our cme conferences always seem to fall on the same week or within the same week, I think maybe the fall is just, you know, popular CME time. So we, uh, we do a pretty good job of, of making sure that we can be on kid duty so the other one can go and fulfill those educational requirements. I am a little jealous, though, because her last CME was in New Orleans, mm-hmm. one of my favorite cities. So she got to do all the fun, you know, beignets and, and all the good food that came down there. She, I'm sure she got a good muffaletta. I'm going to go back to- just a, just a little bit to what you had said earlier about being as fun as a colonoscopy. Well, let me tell you, <laughs> uh, for all those gastro folks out there, um, I had a great time with mine. Oh, you've had a colonoscopy. So it, it was fun. Okay. It, well, you get, you get fentanyl and midazolam. So um, apparently I said some funny things. You're disinhibited. For people who actually do know me, uh, disinhibited john i'm not sure they believe that that existed because i'm usually pretty disinhibited as it is because i thought that was your baseline apparently i can go deeper uh yeah no not a listen get your colonoscopy done everybody i'm not 50 years old that's not what i thought we thought i had celiac so i had to get it done i was just wondering if you did this electively just for the drugs well, no, I, I wanted to make sure that I got my money's worth out of my uh, medical benefits with my workplace. And because you, you know how they, now they show you your total comp instead of just showing you your mm-hmm. your uh, gross because mm-hmm. it makes you look like you're making more when they show you total comp. Well, I'm taking advantage of my total comp right now. But the greatest thing is when I got out of my, my uh, procedure, I'm still out of my mind. I guess I'm apologizing to my wife as I'm getting changed and, you know, maybe getting a flash here or there of my back and and she's like, you don't need to apologize. We've been married for a while. Well, <clears throat> at the same time, the nurse brought me another package of uh, treats because uh, I kept asking for more, I guess. What they didn't know is that I was being tested for celiac and they kept giving me more pretzels and they were not uh, gluten-free. <laughs> and they were like, my wife had uh, had some words, but that was great. Um, the second th- uh, thing I want to bring back to is setting your monitor uh, up and going and doing something else. Right when you get your your live CE or your uh, live CEs just remotely, they have started to figure this out. I'm not sure what it's been like for you guys, but the platforms that I currently use, uh, one of them I, we can plug, right? Yeah, I mean, we're not getting paid. I'm not getting paid yeah, by these right. guys. Uh, one of the, one of the platforms that I use is Free CE because it's very cheap. It's not actually free. Everybody, it is seventy five dollars a year and um, limited. Uh, amounts of CEs on there, but it used to be that you could set it. I can even, I love listening to podcasts. Uh, I can get a lot of information when I'm driving. I would set it. I would listen as I drive, but they figured it out. They knew I wasn't looking at a screen and they used to do this chime right in the middle to just do your middle of the uh, middle of the lecture uh, check-in to make sure that you're actually watching it. And it used to be this big ding like thing sound, right? So you knew, oh, I got to pick it up and got to answer. Doesn't matter what you answer, just got to answer something. Well, now they don't do that and they do it random spots throughout. It's like this some sort of machine that just, so 
they've got us. Unfortunately, I got to actually listen to it. But I'm sure it's the John McDonald fix. They yeah, they, maybe they had to mine. put this code in simply for you. They just they it's only for me. I asked everybody else and they said no. I still ding. But okay, yeah. So let's talk about some online uh, content. Do you so? Do you have requirements to do a certain, um, you said a certain amount, 50% and 50% and online, 50% in person, right? And they count uh, live CEs at conferences the same as they would live CEs in your own home, right? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit for PA. So they have category one and then category mm-hmm. two. Category one actually can be on-demand stuff. So I was a little bit confusing earlier. Um, mm-hmm. But it usually ends up being live events or on-demand events, not okay. just journal articles. But you know, a yeah. webinar, a pre-recorded webinar, would still usually count if it's accredited as as category one. Do they invite the speaker or the lecturer on at the end to answer questions? Uh, I mean, that's what I see on our side, but I'm not sure about you. Yeah, for a lot of the on-demand stuff, a um, little bit later on, we'll talk about some of the free offerings, and most of those are um, pre-recorded lectures that have mm-hmm. been accredited. So those ones don't have the Q&A. And I think the Q&A is immensely valuable because it allows you to, to get clarity on the presentation. It allows you to interact with the author, who's usually a, a key opinion leader or you know a, a very highly esteemed academic. So I do think there's additional value there. And this is a, a good segue to the online, though, because I think COVID has changed this. Um, online was already growing. Obviously, we lived in the internet age before COVID hit. So you were already seeing an immense growth in online CME activity. But I think what's happened with COVID, at least in my world, in the psychiatry side of things, is now every single program that I interact with for CME offers a a live version, Mm -hmm. on-demand version, and even a remote version where you can be at home. Different platforms or... Yeah. So for example, both of the major CME um, events that we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. offer where you can attend in person. You can also attend virtually, so it's synchronous, so it's during the actual live conference, okay. you see the live presentations that are streamed, and then you can interact with the authors, you can submit questions, and then they also have a package, they call it the full credit package, where mm-hmm. you can get everything on demand and watch it on your own schedule. Oh, and very, I think the, the flexibility that's offered by that is probably an innovation from COVID that won't go away. You know, it just makes it so much more convenient for providers or for clinicians when they can... Sure. Um, pick the option that fits them best. I was going to say, especially now because of the shortage, uh, you can't always just get away to go to one of these events. Now um, you are, you're going to have to be at the clinic. You're going to have to be at the hospital or wherever your workplace setting is. I know that they shut these down for a couple of years. You couldn't go to any types of events. So I think uh, at least for pharmacists, I know that they cut some sort of requirements down for some folks, uh, but the online, you keep, you keep hitting this point over and over again mm-hmm. that online is not going away. Uh, remote work is only getting uh, spread throughout the whole spread throughout the country, anyways. Um, so I want to hear more about other options because I I stick to my known few because I know I'm going to get my credits there. I know I'm going to have content that I enjoy. But if I want to break out of that, I want to know more about that. If you if you got anything to say, or maybe in your research, you found some stuff that I've never even heard about. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the free CME that you have online, because this is the other thing that I think is exploding because of COVID. And this really, just to give some context, is is something that's occurred in the past 10 to 12 years. 
So we have this explosion of what, what are called medical education and communication companies, which are MECs. Mm-hmm. And essentially what these are is they're, you know, medical education, medical communication, but they are often funded by industry. So, you know, pharmaceutical industry, drug, you know, reps, whatever, will provide what's called non-restricted educational grants to these companies to then formulate educational content. Now, this is not promotional. It doesn't mention any drugs. It does not promote any drugs. It is strictly and um, highly regulated just to be disease state education. It has to still be fair and balanced. It has to meet all CME standards of not having any commercial bias. The reason that we're seeing increased industry funding for these MECs is ever since the open payments law in 2010. So for, for listeners that may not be familiar with the Sunshine Act, in 2010, um, Congress at a federal level enacted legislation where any industry money that goes to a physician, and now PAs and NPs are also listed. I don't know if pharmacists are. Um, it gets publicly posted. So if someone, if a drug rep brings a lunch into my office, it gets listed and the cost of that lunch gets divided by however many people are in the office. So you can go online and see that I had a $3 bagel from whatever drug company. But with this, I think the transparency is an excellent thing because you want to see, you know, what influences are happening where, but there was a, a precipitous drop from 2010 on in promotional activity for the pharmaceutical industry or just, you know, the, the, um, the industry in general. And the funding hasn't dropped per se, but the shift has occurred where less and less money is going towards promotional activity and more money is going towards medical education. So I think this is actually a net benefit um, because, you know, the big benefit of this is the industry is funding it. So then it's accessible to us for free. Mm -hmm. Um, It still has some regulation and should be fair and balanced. Now, you know, there's always some debate there because it still has some level of funding from industry and, you know, whether they are designing things to, to still sway in a different direction, you always want to be aware of who's funding what, because, um, you know, there's always bias everywhere, even if we mm-hmm. try to not have it. But I think overall, having more accessibility to disease state education, to non-branded educational activity is a good thing. I, I certainly would welcome more of that as opposed to just constant promotional activity. And certainly promotional activity can have its place. I, I am a, a paid consultant and speaker for many different companies. But I think disease state education is such a, a wonderful opportunity for clinicians to continue to grow and stay aware. So the, the explosion of these medical education companies has led to a lot of different really high quality, in my opinion, free CME offerings. And we can go through just a couple of these just to give some some people some options. And once again, if you go to patreon.com slash WCRT, you can find our show notes. Um, The show notes are going to be available to members. So, you know, as a a thank you for supporting us and helping us continue to do this, you'll have access to all of our research, um, which we hope will be very valuable for you and have a lot of really great resources that you can then use in your practice. So some free CME options. We have mycme.com. We also have Medscape, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. You may not have realized that this was a medical education company or a MEC. We also have Global Medical Education, Practicing Clinician Exchange, and then Point of Care Network. So Global Medical Education, Practicing Clinician Exchange, and Point of Care Network, once again, from a disclosure perspective, I do have a relationship with them, so just keep that in mind. 
So these are all um, really good examples of companies that predominantly receive funding from industry to do disease state education. The, the information is still CME accredited, should still be free of commercial bias, and should be fair and balanced. You know, obviously, you still want to be a savvy consumer as you, you go through these. But the great thing about this is because they're funded by industry, they're available for free. And you can go to these websites, and the, the amount of content that they have is just immense. So it's very easy just even with these websites. You could go to Medscape and satisfy your entire CME um, requirements for licensure without having to pay a single dollar. Mm-hmm. And not everybody gets CME funding from their employer. Most do, but not everybody does. So having access to these free options can be really valuable and uh, you know improve accessibility for people that may not have the ability or means to go to a live event every year. And I do want to make a point to the bias that we talk about. Uh, when we're educating ourselves, when we're reading journals, we're very scrupulous. We take uh, extra steps to understand who wrote the study, who got the funding. And uh, I, I re- always remember looking through some of these journal clubs, you would see the Bill and Min- Melinda Gates Foundation funding a lot of these studies. And you would go in and say, okay, what, who else are they giving money to? Are they giving money to this pharma uh, or this industry um, company? Are they where else is this money being funded from? And you would go to just really like detective work, trying to figure out who's making the money off of this. Who is there any bias that I haven't seen in this? Well, we should take the same judgment when we're doing these CEs or when we're uh, educating ourselves to see uh, who might be benefiting from, from this. And uh, is this going to benefit my patient in, in the long run? So Sometimes when we look at CEs as a requirement, uh, we don't take as deep of a dive to see, is this information something that I can uh, ethically take back? Which I I don't really ever remember hearing a CE where I thought uh, they shouldn't have said that, or that was too pointed. Uh, I've never gotten that feeling from a CE. It's always been very level playing. And I, I think that anybody creating these CEs know this. And just like any practitioner, unless you are going out of your way, you it's been instilled in your mind through practice, through school, through uh, maybe mentorship from someone who's been in the field for a long time. We've learned to check ourselves even when we're talking. Am I talking from anecdotal or experience-based or am I talking evidence-based? I do want to I do want to give just maybe the other side of that coin. Yeah, and, and certainly I am not anti-pharma. (laughs) If you you look at my CV, you'll know that. So I I do a lot of work with the pharmaceutical industry. I do a lot of promotional activity Mm -hmm. with the pharmaceutical industry. So I think it's important not to minimize the risk of bias. You know, Mm -hmm. bias is always there. And certainly funding source is an important factor in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to just say, oh, if pharma funds something, it's evil. I think mm-hmm. that's such a, a cheap trick that, that we play instead of having a good, robust debate about the actual data. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've heard of insurance companies actually funding research demonstrating superiority of generics. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, insurance is going to have a vested interest in, in showing that generics are better because they're cheaper and they don't want to pay money. Just keep your head about your shoulders. I mean, just, just think. It, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just always approach things with a critical eye always recognize that, you know, who's paying for this matters. Mm -hmm. 
and make sure that you keep that in mind as you're making your own assessment of, um, you know, whether it is indeed fair and balanced. Well, I, I do have to say, I'm a little disappointed at uh, industry giving more of the money to education because I don't, where did all the pens go? Where did all of the uh, Vivan staplers go or the basketball hoops with the Pepsi on it? I want more promotional materials to bring home. I need more pens. It was clearly corrupting you, John. I don't get this anymore. And if, if I did, I probably would point more people to Tums in the aisles. Tums, <laughs> throw me a bone. I know you're making money out there. You would point to the Tums with the Tums branded pen. And I would wear mm-hmm. my, my Tums undershirt and I'd kind of like pull it. Just, it's good stuff. So let's, uh, let's finish with, because I, I think we're running a little bit long on time, but I, I want to finish with just talking about how much do CME, um, do employers typically reimburse for CME? So I was able to find an annual report by Merritt Hawkins. And if you're not familiar with Merritt Hawkins, it's a wonderful research, uh, market research company that does a lot of work for healthcare, specifically with physician PA and NP. And they put out an annual report of comp and benefits for providers. So in 2020 to 2021, 94% of employers offered CME reimbursement. So this is the vast majority of employers are giving their providers at least, so PA, NP, and physician, some level of CME compensation or reimbursement. Um, the average CME amount for physicians was 3600 The average CME amount for PA and NP was 2900 which my goodness. So I, I no longer get benefits. I'm on a productivity model at my job, but I was getting 1500. So I, uh, I needed to renegotiate. I didn't realize that the numbers were that high. So this report, I think can be very helpful for listeners, depending on what you get at your, your job. Maybe you're not getting enough CME reimbursement and you can pull this report and use that as a tool to negotiate. Or alternatively, if you're not getting CME at all, you can go to your employer and say, look, my goodness, get with the times. The vast majority of people are receiving um, some sort of CME compensation. And I I do think it's an important thing. So that's a good place to end unless you've got anything to add, John. No, I think the last thing I'll say is that when we post this on Patreon, go ahead, check out the sources that we have here. There's lots of opportunities to check out uh, new sources. Uh, Maybe you find what I found with my wife being diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, I'd never even thought to use the ADA for some of their, their information or some of their CEs, but man, the quality of their presentations were top notch. Uh, the depth which they went, uh, they were talking about where they were talking about where insulin, when it first came out, the, uh, the benefits and, and the amount of active insulin actually in these vials and talking about how they, uh, how the scientists used to extract, I mean, they went deeper than I ever thought. And there was more medicine based. And so I was surprised and I was uh, enthused. So get out there, check out different sources and get excited about what you're learning. And I think maybe in the future, maybe we'll dive in deep and talk uh, uh, specifically about the the range of different CEs you can get. I mean, are we talking about sex trafficking and how to identify sex trafficking situations in a clinic or retail setting? That is a CE out there. Have we had to have we had to use this before? Yes. I mean, we're going to talk about opiate abuse and the use of Narcan in the community uh, among 
residents and necessary healthcare practitioners. Yes, there's stuff out there for that too. It's not just disease state and medicine based. There's other education opportunities out there. Uh, kind of like what we're doing with this podcast. This this is supposed to be professional and personal development uh, for healthcare professionals. Uh, there are CEs out there to do just that for you too. So next time when we come on talking about CEs, hopefully we can present some of that to you guys. But uh, I need to know in your personal life, you know, when when Mike takes off the long coat, the long white coat, do you wear do you wear a nice? No, leaf? no, not in psychiatry. No, okay. I I've gotten pretty casual. I I generally just wear khakis and a fleece sweater. I kind of look like Mr. Rogers. Okay, when the shoes come off and you're singing your song at the house before Mr. McFeely comes by, or I think that's what his name was. Um, Terrible name, John. I have office shoes. Oh, well, being German, you get you've got shoes for every location. <laughs> I've learned this when I married in, yep. into, my, into my family. I wear sneakers. I wear sneakers mm-hmm. into the office, and then I've got a pair of uh, like really nice, comfortable loafers, and I switch over to them. And I, you know, hum in my head, will you be my neighbor? And I'm glad that you do this. I'm the only people looked at me strange the other day. I walked, we, we just hit, we're in March, uh, March, uh, 22nd today. I walked in today wearing my soccer sandals, uh, cause I, I had a self-care tip, uh, talking to, um, a colleague one time, I just do something simple, something simple that takes you out of the mode of work. That's just for you. And weird enough, I was like, you know, I'm going to wear sandals into work and I'm going to change out of my shoes when I'm done and put sandals back on and walk out. Mm-hmm. Man, that mm-hmm. was nice. It was very good. <laughs> so yep. yeah, take some self-care. But no, when, okay, when you take the shoes off, when, when, you're, when you're home and you're not thinking about work, I need to know something about this past week that maybe you tried something new, maybe a drink, maybe a book, maybe a show. Tell me something about yourself. All right. I've got a good uh, one for you. So it's uh, two weeks ago, but this is why I'll tease mm-hmm. the background. So if uh, if we ever do post the video, listeners can see it. But I tried ice climbing for the first time. I was out in Denver for a meeting. So my amazing wife hung out with the kids and let me stay an extra day. And I hired a guide and went out into the Rocky Mountains and did ice climbing. And it was incredible. So a really good workout. It's very mentally challenging because unlike rock climbing, you can put your, you know, picks mm-hmm. because you're, you're using these big axes. So you can put them anywhere you want, but you have to make sure that you're very technically sound in your placement to make sure that things don't slip. And you really don't want to fall as you're carrying two massive axes and then have, you know, four inch metal tines on your feet. But it was a ton of fun. Um, you know, up in New York, there's actually a good amount of ice climbing. So I'm kind of excited to try it out again next winter and maybe start investing in some gear. So that was my fun new experience over the past few weeks. That was non-medical. Mm. How about you? I, I, I can't beat that. I mean, I, the last time I left, yeah, it's, pretty it's, epic. It's, it's wonderful. The thing I'm looking forward to is I'm going to Disney with the kids coming up, but I, I'm, I'll talk about that. And you're looking uh, forward to it. Okay. I'm looking forward I'm looking ahead to the challenge I'm going to have to overcome. Uh, so we'll talk about that when we get there. But I'm thinking about a few things, man. I've watched some new shows, digging some new shows out there. Um, so now I'm spending time outside. Uh, but I will talk about maybe some exercise-based. Uh, I mean, you talked about ice climbing. I got I got a match. So we, I used to be into powerlifting uh, until COVID hit. I was hitting some... Oh man, I hope nobody laughs at these. I hit some great PRs for my size. 
I put up weight that I probably shouldn't have been putting up for my size, which was great. It means I was doing my form well, but so COVID it and exercise went out the window for a lot of people. We started going back to the why. Man, the why is expenses. I've got four, four kids. So why gets a little bit expensive. So my wife said, you know what? I really want to get a Peloton. And I just, I thought, oh boy, oh boy. You know how much a Peloton costs? Uh, so I said, you know what, Carol? I said, if we do that, I think I made some bargain about me being able to go away for a weekend to the cabin that my dad and brothers built. We all built it together. I said, if, if I can do that, we'll buy this thing. We have to cancel the why though. She goes, okay, well, let's think about it. I got home that night from work and she had already done it all. It's getting delivered in a few days. Um, thankfully enough, she bought the old one, but okay. So I got on the Peloton and I thought this was all a spinning class. I watched that when I used to left, I used to watch the class over there and they're yelling. I'm like, Oh, they're hooting, hollering. It's just, come on. So I get on the bike. I'm like, I'm going to rock this thing. I found one. I really like got some indie pop going on. The guy was all jazz. I about died. I clipped, I clipped in. I learned <laughs> to do that. I felt like a pro people always complain about clipping in. And he's like, all right, everybody stand up and let's go like right up this hill. I said, no, sorry, Bruce, whatever your name was. I am not <laughs> standing. I almost died that day. So the Peloton's no joke. The reason why people are losing a ton of weight with it. Um, I am not one of those people. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to get excited about it, but that's what I'm doing outside. I'm trying to get on the horse, bike, whatever. My wife's doing great with it, but I don't know. Yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, awesome. I want to thank you for you know looking into CEs and CMEs across different professions. There's a lot of information out there, and there's a lot of professions too that we didn't even touch on. Uh, and maybe we'll get back back around to that if people submit any questions or clarifications or want to talk about different topics with us. Uh, so, thanks again, Mike, for doing all that research. Thanks for sharing uh, what you learned, and uh, I hope that everybody visits our Patreon account. Uh, again, it's uh, Patreon.com/slash. W-C-R-T. All right, everybody. Have a great day.